0: The U.S. Army. They are under the Special Operations Command. They are fast. They are deadly. They have four battalions that can deploy uh, within 18 hours anywhere in the world. And they do things like seize airfields, um, do reconnaissance, insert clandestine operatives behind enemy lines, um, capture or killing high-value targets, and um, rescue operations. Now, to earn the black and gold tab of the United States Army Ranger, they have to um, do a three-phase, 62-day course. I, um, I just finished doing premarital counseling for a young couple. He's in the Army, and he just is now uh, either in his second or third week of Army Ranger school. It is so tough. They call it the toughest uh, combat course in the world, and that includes all special forces um, courses at both nationally and internationally, um, it, it, it's, it's grueling terrain. They work in swamps. They work in mountain terrain. Um, it's so difficult and that you, you have to qualify. You volunteer for it and then you have to qualify at certain basic levels of physical fitness and, and, and mental preparedness. Even so, half of all volunteers that start wash out in the first week. Of those who remain, half of them will wash out before the end of the course. In other words, only one out of four that start the ranger course will finish it. It is a a demanding, grueling, punishing training. You start out in the morning, you might do uh, 80 to 100 push-ups at maybe 5 a.m. You may do now an eight-mile ruck march with uh, a 10-pound weapon and 45-pound pack or maybe an 85-pound pack, and then you take a a break by climbing over obstacles and being drenched in the lake and so forth, and then maybe do another 12-mile ruck march. First Sergeant Christopher Masters, one of the trainers of the ranger course, he said, because these younger rangers grew up in an age of information saturation, they struggle most when they're faced with incomplete information. In other words, if they don't know what's ahead, that's when they're wrestling uh, uh, the most with what's gonna happen. He says, they tend to have a confidence that crumbles when put to the hammer. And that's why our training emphasizes mastering how to handle volatility. And it conditions them to adapt rapidly to change. Because he says, no matter how well you prepare, You must deal with uncertainty when you deploy. That's true not only if you're an army ranger, that's true of all of life, isn't it? That's true of you if you're a husband or a wife. It's true of you if you're a mom or dad or if you have a particular rigorous um, profession. It's also true of you and me when it comes to following Jesus Christ. Let me say it this way. Your future, my future, a bundle of choices that will be made primarily by previously established loyalties. Our future is a bundle of choices that will be made primarily based on previously established loyalties. In other words, when you get married, if you're married, you went to the altar and you said, I'm making these promises. These these are, are the loyal... Uh, the commitments of loyalty that I'm making now and it's going to influence and impact what I decide to do and not do what I decide to say and not to say and places I decide to go and not to go tomorrow based on decided loyalties today and we're going to talk about this morning what Jesus asks of a person who comes to him and says I want to be your follower what does Jesus what loyalties is he asking of you at that point, Luke chapter 14, we're going to start reading <clears> at <throat> verse 25. A large crowd was following Jesus. He turned around and said to them, if you want to be my disciple, you must hate everyone else by comparison. Your father, your mother, wife, children, brothers and sisters. Yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. And if you do not carry your own cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. But don't begin until you count the cost. For who would begin construction of a building without first calculating the cost, see if there's enough money to finish it. Otherwise, you might run out of money and then everyone would laugh at you. They'd say, oh, there's a person who started that building, couldn't afford to finish it. Or what king would go to war against another king without first sitting down with his counselors to discuss whether his army of 10,000 could defeat the 20,000 soldiers marching against him? And if he can't, he will send a delegation to discuss terms of peace while the the enemy is still far away. So you cannot become my disciple without giving up everything you own. Let's pray. God, well, I got to pray for the power of the Holy Spirit this morning to apply the word of God to our lives that we might understand and even more so embrace the demanding call of Jesus on our lives. I pray for those who are, <clears throat> have not yet come to the to they're just not ready to take that step. They're pondering, but they're not been ready to take the step of saying yes to Jesus that they might leave this morning with, without ambiguity about just what it is Jesus asks of them and just what it will look like if they sign on. And for those of us who do know Christ, to kind of <clears throat> revisit this clarion call of our great leader and to be a, just reconsider all over again the treasure that he has brought to our lives, the treasure that he is, the hidden treasure sometimes that he might be in the midst of dark, dark moments. And be reminded all over again of just how privileged we are to be children of the King. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. It's interesting that verse 25 starts out with the observation that the crowd that's following Jesus is of what size? What's it say? Large, large crowd. We've talked about this many times through our uh, journey through Luke. How early in the days, uh, uh, Jesus made enemies early in his ministry. Don't misunderstand me. But by and large, as you track Jesus' ministry through the first half, through first two-thirds of his public ministry, everybody's all gaga about him. They're so excited. People are following him everywhere. They're turning out in the deserts to listen to him for hours on end, teach and preach. And then we see things begin to change later in his ministry. He starts to say crazy things about uh, like eating his body and his flesh and drinking his blood and uh, crazy things like you uh, sell everything and give your uh, the money that you get from your belongings to the poor. Um, giving up your rights, and people start to say, well, I'm not sure I want to follow him after all. And one of the things that's interesting about Jesus, when you read his life in the gospel account, is that Jesus was not bashful about saying the hard things. He wasn't primarily uh, interested in seeing how big the crowd could become. I was in uh, sales for five years, and we were taught to qualify our customers, in other words, we want to find out from potential customers, from prospects, just what it is they're looking for so we can increase the prospects that we're going to be able to sell them and make them a, a customer. And so we would try to find out, for example, what, what's your budget? Now, I was a custom kitchen designer. And so, you know, kitchens could cost back in those days, impittance of what they cost today, but maybe 6000 to 20000 The kitchens I sold were probably in the neighborhood of $6,000 to $20,000 uh, per kitchen. And so if somebody came to me and I am and probing, I found out that their budget was, uh, say, $6,000 or $8,000, I'm going to design their kitchen accordingly because I know if I design a $14,000 kitchen, they're not going to become a customer of mine. If, on the other hand, they're interested in seeing a, a, a showcase kitchen that will impress all of their friends and neighbors, I'm not going to design a $6,000 kitchen. Why? Because I want them to be my customer. You see, my company's goal and my goal was to make as many customers as possible, to make the crowd as big as possible. That's not a leader's goal. If a general is going to go into combat, he's not concerned just about the size of the the battalion following him, but the caliber of the men in that battalion. Will they, on order, without debating with the general, will they rush a machine gun nest? Will they, on order, do something that's very dangerous, that might cost them their lives, um, that, that whole lot of things that could happen that would be bad, from capture to death to injury. Do I have the kind of people that will follow me into battle and die for me? And Jesus is that kind of leader. He's not looking to see how big the crowd becomes. That should be instructive for us as Christians today. Are you simply interested in seeing how many people you can get to follow Jesus? Are you interested in creating disciples? Remember what Jesus said? He didn't say go into all the world and make converts. He said go into all the world and make disciples. And so Jesus isn't just looking at the the size of the crowd. He wants to make sure that if people are going to follow him, they know what they're getting in for. They know what they're signing up for. When you got married, those of you who are married, <clears throat> when you uh, made a commitment to this man or to this woman, you, you uh, from maybe looking at your parents, from looking at other couples that you know that are married, uh, maybe from reading books, maybe from premarital counseling, you, you looked at some things that were going to be demanded of you as a husband or as a wife, and you say, yep, I'm on board with this. When you were offered a job and you were told what it might look like, what it was going to demand of you, you, you made a decision. Yes, I'm on board. No, I think I'm going to look elsewhere. I, it doesn't matter what kinds of choices we make in life. We're going to make decisions about whether or not we can do what is going to be asked of us. And so Jesus talks about, you know, a builder. a builder has to count the cost of his building. A general, a general has to count the cost of fighting. In other words, what it's what it's going to uh, uh, cost him. And prospective disciples have to count the cost of following Jesus. I wonder how many of us who are Christians can go back and when we decided to follow Christ, we're understanding just what it might mean. I think Probably most of us would say, no, that was a, a growing realization as the years unfolded after we said yes to Jesus. We didn't really grasp fully up front. Some of that, I think, can be um, the blame could be laid on simply how we were, had, had the gospel shared with us or how we share the gospel with other people. Now, the language in this passage is troubling. Some of your uh, more literal translations don't say, like the NLT does, that you have to love Jesus more than your family. It says you must hate your family. You husbands, hate your wives. You moms, hate your children. You children, hate your parents. Now, we need to clarify this. Uh, It's important to clarify this because sometimes we love Jesus by loving family members. And so it says in uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, husbands, what, your wives? Love your wives. Let me hear all the husbands say that. Husbands, (laughs) love your wives, right, as Christ loved the church. In fact, it says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, that husbands, if you don't treat your wife like you're supposed to, don't expect to have your prayers answered. It's a big deal how Jesus feels about how husbands should care for their wives. It's also, the Bible is also very clear about how wives should treat their husbands and their children. In fact, those of you who are older women, you're called out in Titus chapter two, verse four, to teach and train, take the younger wives and moms under your wing and teach them to love their husbands well and teach them to love their children well. Sometimes we Love Jesus by loving our families. Um, when we decided to move uh, my parents in with us uh, four and a half years ago now, that was the result of a commitment to Jesus Christ. We had had this conversation, Betty and I had had this conversation for 20 years. We had come to the conclusion by studying scripture that this was a call of God on a child's life to care for uh, aging parents and grandparents. And so when the time came, Ready to do it. We were loving Jesus by loving families. I mean, you go through, all through scripture, you see this again and again, the call to be right toward and loving toward our families. When the little children came up to Jesus' lap and the disciples were trying to shoo them off, Jesus said, don't keep them from coming to me. I love children. They're the pristine example of the, the purity and the innocence of faith that should be mark adults as well. Jesus, uh, the scripture says in 1 Timothy 5.8 that those who don't provide for their family members are worse than pagans because even unbelievers take care of their family members. Sometimes we love Jesus by loving our families, but sometimes we love Jesus by putting family second or even third. Sometimes we love Jesus by even putting the idea of family second or third. There are some of you here this morning who would desperately love to be married. You can say amen if you want to or not. I don't know anything about that. I was a, basically a child bridegroom. I don't know anything about that. But I know enough people in those straits to know that there's an agony and a longing and a hunger in their heart that's unfulfilled. Unfulfilled. And yet the me- part of the message of the gospel is that Jesus is coming to us and telling us, I'm more wonderful than you know. And I'm more satisfying than you know. And I want you to inch by inch, month by month, and year by year, come to grasp that I am fully satisfying to you. me to have you look at a verse here in 1 Corinthians just a second. 1 Corinthians 7. Verse beginning at verse 7. Paul's a single man and he says in verse 7, but I wish everyone were single just as I am. Yet each person has a special gift from God of one kind or another. And so I say to those who aren't married, to widows and to widows, better to stay unmarried just as I am. And the context is he talks about the way things are, the conditions that they are right now, the persecution and so forth. Better to be single, be able to serve Christ, not have the distraction of a, of a partner. He's not saying marriage is sinful. He's just saying um, singleness is preferable right now. And that's going to happen to some single people across the ages where God's going to say, I'm calling you. I'm going to to give you a gift. You're not going to think it's a gift initially, but I'm going to give you this gift because I have some things I want you to preoccupy yourself with and not be distracted with. Sometimes loving Jesus most means putting family or even the idea of a family second rather than first. Last week, we made some comments about the ideal that we have as parents, I think many of us, about protecting our children. I was thinking about, um, uh, I won't name the couple or the location, but a couple that is in mission work um, on the other side of the globe. And... uh, somewhat of a risky area. And the day came when they were notified that their family's name included their three little children, their name and their pictures and their addresses had been posted on a terrorist's website. Now, moms and dads, What would you do if you found that out? Would you pack your bags and go home? Or would you stay if you were convinced that this is what Jesus had for you? I mean, I just imagine that, you know, as a dad, feeling the weight of responsibility for my child's well-being, <clears throat> to be confronted with the prospect that bad, bad people know about me and my family and what we're here to do, what should I do? Sometimes loving Jesus First means not, not not loving family, but loving them second. Protecting our children. Are you, are you willing to let your kids be part of your ministry base in your neighborhood? Say, you can play with Johnny, you can play with Susie uh, within this context, or you say, nope, you can't have anything to do with Johnny and Susie because their families like this, their families like that. In other words, there's wisdom to be had. But do we simply, because we're so fearful of what could happen to them, that we we kind of remove them from this calling that we have to be salt and light to our neighbors? one of the things that we all as parents have to wrestle with in this day and age is what do we do about our kids in school? I forget even who it was. I was talking to somebody this week in light of the sermon last week and they're like, man, are we going to homeschool or are we gonna, do we have to go to public school in order to impact the culture and so forth? And every, every parent has to decide those kinds of things between them and the Lord. I don't think there's an open and shut It's always this way, always this way, always this way. But is our fear about what could happen to our kids, does it preclude us from saying yes to Jesus when it might be risky for them? Sometimes saying we love Jesus most means putting family second. Many, many married couples go through seasons in their lives where they become dissatisfied with their spouse. <clears throat> if that's you, trust me, you have a lot of company. You just get dissatisfied. She's not doing this or she's, she's not being this. He's not doing this. He's not being this. And Over the years, I've had a number of women use the identical language with me. I just want a white knight. And, you know, I can say it 17 different ways. There ain't no such thing, but they're still hopeful. And they really think if they just dump this bum that they got for a husband, there is a white knight out there for them. No, there's just a different kind of sinner out there for you. Who's going to disappoint you again and again. Jesus wants to, he wants, when he's talking about he matters more than anything, that that we love him more than anyone or anything, He's, he's saying anything else you can go through with me. Your marriage is disappointing. Your family extended relationships are disappointing. I'm disappointed that I don't have a mate at all. I want to be everything for you. So that even if your spouse disappoints you, I matter most. What about time away from family for ministry? <clears throat> Increasingly, and this is across the board in American churches. I talked to a lot of pastors. Increasingly, pastors say my, my people don't want to. They don't, don't want to volunteer for ministry. And then we have these conversations. Why is that? What's, what's the feature? And there's a variety of features. But one of them that comes up again and again is, I, I don't want to take time away from my family. Unless you love me more than your family, hatred by comparison. You cannot. Jesus doesn't say it's hard to be my disciple. He says you cannot be my disciple. Is that true? Any of us? I don't want to do ministry because take away from my family. How much, how much do I love Jesus? Jesus says, unless you take up your cross, unless you take up your cross, what's the cross? What is the, the cross? Is it just a little gold piece of jewelry around our neck? Is it the thing that's on the steeple of churches? What is the cross? Well, it's like the hangman's noose. It's like the electric chair. It's an instrument of torture and discomfort and death. (sighs) I don't like that. I like a Christianity more marked by things like cotton candy and lazy boy recliners and vacations. That's the kind of Christianity I like. No, unless you take up your cross... You cannot be my disciple. Again, I, the cross speaks of discomfort. What am I willing to give up? What am I willing to embrace? What hardships in for Jesus' sake? John chapter 9 to me is one of the most disconcerting stories in all of the new testament it's a story about a man who was born blind he's now an adult don't know how old he is maybe 20s maybe 30s and jesus and his disciples are walking by and jesus disciples ask him who sinned this man or his parents and they asked the question because in their minds they understood bad things happen to people who are bad or whose relatives are bad. So the man's born blind, who's, who's to blame, his parents or him? And Jesus says, neither. This happened, very clear, there's no ambiguity about it. this happened, i.e. His, i.e. his blindness. This happened so that the glory of God may be manifest, or something like that. And then Jesus goes on to heal him. And the message could not be any clearer. God sovereignly ordained that this man would be blind from birth so that 20, 25, 30 years down the road, God could heal him and God could get great, great glory and fame. Man, when I read that story, some of you know I've been battling health problems the last three months. One symptom of which was I go uh, completely blind in my right eye for Five to ten minutes, can't see a thing. And I imagine going through life blind for 20, 30 years. And then I find out that the purpose of this was so that God might be glorified someday when Jesus heals me? Yeah. So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. God. God has put together a universe and a planet and a people to proclaim his glory because there is no one and nothing more glorious than a holy God who has made us and who has sacrificed his one and only son for us. And then Jesus goes on to say, unless we are ready to give up everything we own, we cannot be his disciple. Three times. Unless you love your, hate your family in comparison to how you love me, unless you take up your cross, and unless you are prepared to give up everything you own, you cannot be my disciple. You cannot be my disciple. You cannot be my disciple. You might ask, wait a minute, Keith, you always talk about the free nature of the gospel. Does this contradict a free gospel? Free gospel means there's no cost. If you want to become a child of God, if you want to be forgiven of your sins and have eternal life, if you want to be transformed from the inside out, there ain't nothing you can pay for it. He saved us, not on the basis of works that we have done in righteousness, but he saved us according to his mercy. By renewal and regeneration by the Holy Spirit. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not of yourselves, it is a gift, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Free. Absolutely free. We repent of our sins. We put our trust in Jesus Christ to forgive us. We are the recipients. It doesn't cost us anything. In Exodus chapter 21, there's a fascinating story in the context of how the Israelites were supposed to treat their slaves, especially a Hebrew slave. And the deal was that every seventh year, you had to release any Hebrew slaves you had. But what happened if you had gotten this Hebrew slave, and while he was living with you, you as a master gave him a wife, and now he has children? Well what happens is if the man decides at year 7 that he wants to go free he can go free the master will give him his freedom it's only one catch he doesn't get to take his wife and children with him into freedom and so he can voluntarily say i love my wife i love my children i'm going to remain a slave And when that happens, they take this man to the doorpost and they take an awl and they put his ear up against the doorpost and they drive that awl through the ear. It's now a symbol of this man's voluntary slavery. Why? Because he so loves his wife and his children. Listen, when you look at the cross... And what Jesus has done for you. How could we not say pierce my ear Lord. Pierce my ear. You know when those rangers get on the C-130s for overseas missions they give up time with their families. They give up their privacy. They give up their freedom. They may even give up life limb. Why? Because they love the security of their nation, defending their nation most of all. And that's what Jesus is calling us to, a love for him that's a most of all love. He loves your spouse. He loves your kids. He loves your extended family. He loves your life. He loves your health. He even loves your comfort. He loves your stuff. He's given we, the things that we have are blessings from heaven. But he wants us to love him most of all. Our future is a bundle of choices that will be made by previously established loyalties. Let me close with this interesting quote by C.S. Lewis. He says, when first things are put first, second things are not suppressed, but increased. In other words, when you put Christ first instead of your family, when you put Christ first instead of your comfort, when you put Christ first instead of your things, There is a sweetness to all those other things that's enhanced. There is a health and a vitality in all of those other things that's enhanced. When first things are put first, second things are not suppressed but increased. And some of you have found that to be true. All of us can. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the good news of Jesus Christ and a lamb of God who was willing to go to the cross for the likes of people like us. Willing to, 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 to say, I'm, the things that I treasure, the, the ones that I love, I, I, I'm going to treasure this group of broken people most. I, I, I treasure them above my, my own plans, above, above my own comfort, above my own... Um, prestige. He who knew no sin became sin for us. So grateful. For those that might be here who are not followers of Jesus, I pray that they would come to the threshold of doing so with eyes wide open. Understanding that you're not recruiting a collection of customers. You're recruiting a band on a mission. And to understand that you will not mistreat or, um, you're not going to make mischief out of their trust in you. And to be reminded in the cross all over again of the magnitude of your love for them. And for that, to remind us who know you as well. And to be reassured that you're not going to mistreat our first love. That you're not going to strip us of what we're desperately in need of. You might take things from us. You might take people from us, but you will never take from us.